American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about the true story behind the major blockbuster 1973 movie, The Exorcist. It's considered one of the most terrifying movies of all time, and considering the subject matter and how graphic it was, that's not at all surprising. Now, I'm a movie buff, but I'm not into horror, terrifying movies. This one is not my cup of tea. I've actually never seen it. Yeah, I have seen The Exorcist, and it is pretty terrifying. It deals with the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl named Regan, whose mother seeks medical and other assistance to deal with the strange things going on with her daughter before turning to the church and seeking an exorcism. The movie was based on the best-selling book by William Peter Blatty, who in turn had based his book on a number of accounts of exorcisms, but one in particular. That one was a 1949 exorcism of a teenage boy carried out in suburban Maryland and in St. Louis. Now, let's take a step back before getting into that story and talk a bit about exactly what an exorcism is and how it's carried out. Sure. So exorcism is, at base, a prayer of the church. It is a ritual and prayer that is carried out by a priest who is specially charged by the local bishop to carry out this function. Its purpose is to ward off or drive away demons who have infiltrated a place or object, taken possession of a person's body or significantly occupy a person's mind. Now, the church does not believe that a person loses their free will when they are possessed by demons, and it is not the case that the demon is in control of the person's body at all times. The manifestations of the demon's possession come and go, and the person can be quite normal and unaffected for long stretches. But the manifestations will come back, especially if the demon feels that their possession of the person is challenged. You said it has to be a priest who is specially charged by the local bishop. Why is that so specific? If it's a prayer and ritual and the words of the prayer are publicly available, why can't any priest conduct an exorcism or any layman for that matter? Well, it's a matter of authority. In an exorcism, the priest is ordering the demon to do something which the demon does not want to do, leave and stop bothering the person or place. And the priest is doing so in the name of Christ crucified. Those who act in the name of Christ crucified are those whom Christ said act in his name, which means the apostles and their successors, and then those to whom they delegate that authority. So this goes back to Matthew 16. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Exactly. Christ gave the power to command spiritual realities to Peter and the apostles and thereby to the church, which he founded and they were the first bishops of. Today's bishops are their successors, so the local ordinary is the chief steward of Christ's power in his local church, so he has the authority within his diocese and he can delegate that authority to his ordained ministers, the priests. So an auxiliary bishop can't do this, and a bishop can't grant this authority within the bounds of another diocese. It has to be the ordinary of that particular diocese. Right. 
Many dioceses have one or more priests who are officially charged with this role. Sometimes the role is granted on a case-by-case basis. But dioceses rarely publicize who the exorcist priest is to prevent unwanted attention. When someone contacts the diocese to request an exorcism, the diocese takes lots of steps to determine if the person really is possessed or if there is some other explanation for their problems, whether physical or mental. The phenomena are observed carefully and a full psychiatric evaluation is done, as is a full physical checkup, and many experts are consulted before the determination is made that, yes, in this case, an exorcism is warranted. Symptoms, if you will, of demonic possession include speaking in tongues that the person has no reason to know, knowledge of fact that they couldn't possibly know, physical manifestations like levitation or superhuman strength, Objects near them moving on their own, smells and changes in the atmosphere like temperature that have no other explanation, and abhorrence of sacred items and others. Really freaky stuff. Exorcisms are not pleasant. And we should also make clear that demonic possession isn't a thing that just happens. Individuals have to do something that opens the door for a demon to enter. Things like taking part in a seance or using a Ouija board or even seriously using tarot cards or palm reading. Anything where you are attempting to contact the beyond or divinize the future can be exploited by demons to enter. Which I have to admit is a relief because when I was younger, I was super scared about possession and really afraid that that might happen to me. So I was really glad to know that you have to do something something. like that. Yes. Now, and this isn't requesting the intercession of saints or praying for those in purgatory. This is attempting to communicate with or get answers from intelligent beings in the spiritual realm. You may think you're contacting a beloved deceased relative, but it is someone far more sinister who answers. So that's a bit of a thumbnail sketch of exorcism in the church. The real life situation that William Peter Blatty based the exorcist novel on met the criteria. Yes, let's get back to that real life story. It's a very gripping story. It goes back to the 1940s when the boy in question was given the pseudonym Roland Doe to protect him and his family's identity. He was born in about 1935. In the 1940s, he lived with his parents in Cottage City, Maryland. Cottage City borders Washington, D.C. The family was Lutheran. They weren't Catholic. He was an only child and spent a lot of time with his Aunt Harriet. But Aunt Harriet was a spiritualist, and at some point, she introduced him to the Ouija board. And like you said, that's bad. Ouija boards are tools used to communicate directly with spirits or to divine the future. And so they open a door that a demon may come through. It doesn't mean that it will happen, but it could happen. Whereas if you just never open a door, it can't ever happen. So when Roland used the Ouija board, he opened himself up to demonic possession. And then in late 1948, Aunt Harriet died. But Roland didn't stop using the Ouija board, and he probably used it more intentionally than in an attempt to communicate with the dearly missed Aunt Harriet. But it wasn't Harriet's spirit that came calling. Beginning on January 15th, 1949, weird things started happening. Furniture would move on its own. Items would fly through the air as if thrown. Scratching noises from under the floorboards were heard in multiple bedrooms. Noises like marching feet and drumbeats could be heard going past Roland's bed. He would inexplicably have claw marks on his body, usually spelling out words, and his bed would shake while he was laying still. His parents went to every expert they knew who could help explain the phenomena and possibly help. 
The Lutheran pastor came to see what he could do, and he witnessed manifestations like the boy's bed sliding across the room and a large armchair the boy was sitting on with his feet up, tipping over and dumping him on the floor. The Lutheran minister's final piece of advice was apparently, call the Jesuits. Roland was taken to Georgetown University Hospital, where he was evaluated by Father Edward Albert Hughes, S.J., who thought that the case might merit an exorcism, and permission was granted by the archbishop. Roland was strapped to a hospital bed and the rite commenced, but it wasn't completed. Father Hughes was compelled to stop when Roland broke free of his restraints, ripped a spring from the mattress of his bed, and slashed the priest across the arm and shoulder. Shortly after this, Roland's family decided to move to St. Louis, where they had family, also hoping that leaving Cottage City would leave behind whatever was troubling Roland. But the demon came with them. A cousin was attending St. Louis University, a Jesuit university, and he offered to bring the matter to some of the priests on campus. The first to come was Father Raymond Bishop, S.J. Father Bishop actually kept a very detailed journal of everything he and others witnessed, and he included the detailed backstory of everything that had happened before his involvement in the case. Right, and it was his journal which gave William Blatty the foundations for his book. After his first visit to see Roland, Father Bishop brought with him another Jesuit, Father William Bowdern. These two priests witnessed Roland's bed shake violently as he lay still on it, They witnessed many things moving unnaturally, like heavily laden bookshelves slide across the floor. They witnessed a bottle of holy water fly across the room, and they witnessed the scratched words appear and disappear on Roland's body, plus more things. They would bless him and the room and the house with holy water, with relics of saints, sometimes pinning the relics to Roland's bed. These measures would sometimes serve to reduce the manifestations for a time, but they would come back. It was on March 16th, 1949 that Archbishop Joseph Ritter of St. Louis gave the go-ahead for Father Bowdrin to lead the exorcism. Father Bowdrin protested that he had never done an exorcism and didn't know anything about it, but Archbishop Ritter had selected him, so it was him. So with apprehension, Father Bowdrin went to the library and read up on exorcisms and began a regime of prayer and fasting. And from the time the exorcism began, Father Bowdrin was a nearly constant companion to Roland. The exorcisms began at the family's home. Roland's parents, an uncle, and three priests were in attendance. When the exorcisms formally began, the manifestations became more severe. More scratches on his body, more violent gyrations and lashing out, more threats of violence, and eventually vulgarity and cursing. During the downtimes, usually during the day, because the manifestations generally came at night, Roland was able to tell them that he saw himself fighting a great demon in a deep, fiery pit. He had to try to climb out of the pit to fight the demon blocking the gates. At the beginning of April, his parents decided that he should be baptized a Catholic. They were all Lutheran. So he was taken to the church of St. Francis Xavier. His possessing demons tried to prevent the baptism by putting him into violent fits on the drive to the church and then all the way into the rectory. His state made it impossible to even think of doing the baptism in the church at the baptistry. He resisted so violently throughout the baptism ceremony that it caused those present to wonder if his Lutheran baptism had been done properly. The next morning, they brought him his first Holy Communion, and Roland fought against the demons hard enough to eventually receive the host after spitting it out five times. The exorcism ritual was performed over and over again for many days. 
the demonic possession continued to manifest in different ways. Words and images would appear as raised red welts on his skin, and then they would go away. At one point, a large X appeared, which they took to be the Roman numeral 10, an indication that there were 10 demons possessing the boy. He would become incredibly strong and would contort himself in all sorts of unnatural ways. During the ritual, the boy would be violent and vulgar, frequently in Latin, which he had never studied. His outbursts would get worse and worse until reaching their apex as the priest reached the climactic part of the prayer, commanding the demons, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, I cast thee out. Eventually, the violence got so bad and the effect on his mother's health so grave, they had to move him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital to continue the exorcisms. He was moved there permanently on April 10th, where he was put into a room apart from regular patients, one that had good, strong restraints on the bed. Moving there had another benefit. The Alexian Brothers community would be able to contribute their constant prayers to the spiritual battle taking place. And the battle continued. That week was Holy Week, with Easter on April 17th. They managed to give him communion on the fourth try, but the devil clearly said through Roland that he would not let Roland go to Mass. The next day, April 18th, Easter Monday, was the final day of the battle. After a long day of back and forth, the rosary, many prayers, relics and medals being placed around his neck, they commenced with another recitation of the exorcism. During this final recitation, the most striking and welcome thing happened. As Father Bishop relates it in his journal, quote, in clear, commanding tones, and with dignity, a voice broke into the prayers. The following is an accurate quotation. Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael, and I command you, Satan, and all the other evil spirits, to leave the body in the name of Dominus immediately. Now, now, now. And we'll let Father Bishop tell us what happened next. Then there were the most violent contortions of the entire period of exorcism, that is, since March 16th. Perhaps this was the fight to the finish. Father of Flaherty and the brothers were weary and sore physically from the exertion. After seven or eight minutes of violence, Roland, in a tone of complete relief, said, He's gone. Immediately, Roland came back to normal and said he felt fine. Roland now explained what he saw. He said there was a brilliant white light, and in that light stood a very beautiful man with flowing, wavy hair that blew in the breeze. He wore a white robe that fitted close to his body. The material gave the impression of scales. Only the upper half of the body of this man was visible to Roland. In his right hand, he held up a wavy and fiery sword in front of him. With his left hand, he pointed down to a pit or cave. Roland said he saw the devil standing in the cave. Roland felt the heat from the cave and saw the flames. First, the devil fought, resisting the angel and laughing diabolically. Then the angel smiled at Roland and spoke, but Roland heard only one word, Dominus. As the angel spoke, the devil and about ten of his helpers ran back into the fire or the cave or pit. After the devil disappeared, the letters Spite appeared on the bars of the cave. As the devils disappeared into the pit, Roland felt a pulling or tugging in the region of his stomach. As the devils disappeared, he felt a snapping and then felt relaxed completely. He said that this was the most relaxed feeling he had had since the whole experience began in January. Roland's ordeal was over. Three months of literal hell inside of him was gone. 
We will provide a link to Father Bishop's journal in the show notes, but it's not for the faint of heart. It is a bracing read. William Peter Blatty wrote his best-selling book, The Exorcist, in 1971, and the movie came out in 1973. The movie became a sensation and today is the 15th highest grossing film of all time when you adjust for inflation, making it easily the highest grossing horror film of all time. Both William Peter Blatty and The Making of the Exorcist could end up getting American Catholic History episodes of their own. The three main priests involved avoided talking about the experience of their exorcism afterward, and Father Baldrin, the primary exorcist, would only ever say that he knew it was the real deal. Roland went on to live a fairly normal life after all of this was over, and his parents became Catholic in 1950. Roland eventually got married and started a family, and when his first son was born, he named him Michael, after the angel who had delivered him. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And support the many productions of SQPN at sqpn.com give. To learn more about The Exorcist and exorcisms, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit sqpn.com history. We also love feedback and hearing about cool Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. <laughs>